Welcome back to the Parang Sessions. I am Arabelle Chuang from the curatorial team at National Gallery Singapore. Today, we dive into an uncommon history of the common fence, a research project that delves into the fascinating and often overlooked story of the common fence in Singapore. Discover how the common fence, an ordinary urban fixture, transformed into a silent yet influential protagonist shaping the city's historical narratives and identity. Through artful narration and diverse mediums, artist Jason Wee conveys how the fence reveals the untold dimensions of citizenship in the country. This is a prologue. In the final reading, seven photographs shape the biography of our common fence. Today, I will read two deeply, three altogether. This is a method of drawing adjacent a photo history in our archives with design history to read one in the guise of the other. This is also a proposition that the fence is not a divisive design element as it is an infrastructure for thinking through what it means to belong. This too is a proposition that the fence is an infrastructure of participation its designs are inscribed into the forms of participation in public and civic life and informs how we consider the categories of citizen, resident, and worker. To ask this as a question, what can a close reading of photography tell us about the designs on and off our polity? Another question, how is the fence a recurring character in so many of our historical scenes? Photograph one, caption reads, Presidential Election Polling Day Result at Singapore Conference Hall, 28 August 1993. Part 1. The People's President. On 18 August 1993, the nominations for candidature in Singapore's first presidential election opened. Candidates have one hour between 11am and noon to file their papers at the nomination centre, designated to be the Singapore Conference Hall and the trade union house on Shenton Way. An hour might seem sufficient when only two candidates were eligible to stand. Besides, the Straits Times notes that one of the two will only take 15 minutes to walk over from his office on the premise. Once nomination papers were filed and endorsed, candidates had nine days from the next day to campaign till polling day on the 28th of August, 1993. The other eligible candidate made it clear even before he filed his nomination that he will not be actively campaigning for himself. He is standing to provide voters a choice. We know now that Ong Teng Cheong won the election with a comfortable majority, defeating Chia Kim Yao on the right, who managed over 41% of the votes despite his deliberate non-campaign. Mr Ong will go on to be remembered as a people's president especially since his departure from office and since his passing. The capitalized accolade of People's President is in popular memory first given to Wee Kim Wee, but it was Devon Nair who was first recorded by the Straits Times in an editorial on 18th October 1981 to receive it. Yusuf bin Ishak was called a People's President in his obituary, but only in small caps. Yusuf was defined in the Times by his modesty and nature tending to the austere that kept his personality largely unknown to the public. 
Benjamin Shears' passing drew an unexpectedly large crowd for his wake and procession. When the televised of his wake was not repeated, there was also a large public response for what was to be the first televised last rites of a state figure. But it is with Wee Kim Wee that the unsurprisingly unanimous parliamentary praise met with a general acceptance of a proximity between president and people. As Huang Jianli noted, under the original conception tailored for Naya's presidency, the people's president had a strong political dimension. That state building required persisting incumbency in state office drawn from existing political leaders. This was now shoved aside, and Wee's claim to the title lay essentially upon the apolitical admiration of his avuncular personality. Since Ong's passing, his presidency is read as, has been read as a return of that political dimension. Not quite a large break of elite dissenting from itself, but a smaller fissure of skepticism. His quest for institutional transparency, even if ultimately quixotic, legitimizes an elected presidency that was much questioned at the time. A Straits Times poll of 100 people two weeks before the election found that more than half had little or no interest in the election. Uh, Mr. Gunalan Rajan, age 23, says that the presidential election is yet another political spectacle, another ploy to make the people think they're actually taking part in the decision-making process. This whole thing is stagecraft, says another, 43 who declined to be named. His questioning of cabinet decision-making of, of the use of state income and reserves was puzzled over, stalled, and picked apart. At his 1999 press conference announcing his reasons for not seeking re-election, Ong named as his first reason the accountant general's reply that it would take 52 men years to produce the list of government physical assets he requested. The government reply took care to say that it took 60, 56 man years, not 52. The conflict brought to the separate but unthreatened parts of a long incumbency is enough to suggest an unforeseen opening, someone speaking up, though only a member of incumbency speaking to itself, offers others a sense of being heard, revising the people's precedent from an index of popularity under Wikimwe to one of ventriloquism. An NGO wrote in a tribute book published in 1999 that Ong is like bamboo. The higher he reaches, the lower he bends to serve the people. The Singapore Conference Hall. The Singapore Conference Hall still stands. More commonly now, known now as the home to the Singapore Chinese Orchestra, it's named prominently on the Shenton Way facade. Completed two months after our first National Day in 1965, the hall was the outcome of an open competition launched in June 1961. The first post-war open architectural competition in Singapore for a downtown civic building. The design we now see is a co-submission by three men from the Malayan Architects Co-Partnership, William Lim, Chan Von V, and Lim Chong Kit. When it won over 15 other submissions, a letter to the Straits Times congratulated the jury for selecting a showpiece to be proud of, to the trade unions, a fitting monument dedicated to socialism and all its ideals, and to the architecture of this country. On the day it opened, the Swiss-German company Dettelmann Company placed an ad touting it as a view of progress for how anodized and colorized sun control grills can be realized out of capitalized aluminum, 
a modern metal. The opening event was significant for Devon Nair's farewell address. In a matter of days, he will move to Kuala Lumpur to help shape the newly formed Democratic Action Party, and also for the delegates from 30 Afro-Asian countries. Devon Nair called the hall a fulfilled promise based on the recognition that workers form a large part of the electorate. And only labor-oriented social, economic, and political policies could satisfy the aspirations of the people. A feature article on the same page as the ad suggests that the hall perform an indexical function for the state of socialism in its dual and indivisible responsibility to worker and to state. This duality is entwined in the naming, Singapore Conference Hall and Trade Union House, but also in the ways the opening is staged before the press photographer if the space is, as the paper says, an index of the dignity of labor, it is the in, an index that dignifies, in quotes, the dream of a headquarters of the working class by deliberate association with the bright future elites in Raffles Institution who were brought in for school assembly that day. The original design is noted for its elemental welcome. It responds to equatorial elements by modulation rather than by enclosure or barricade. The atrium is naturally lit by a curtain wall that doesn't extend all the way to the roof line, allowing warmer air to escape above and natural ventilation beneath. Aluminum grills hover above that gap, diffusing wind, rain, and light, while the concrete screen performs to a different degree for the east side of the building. Clerestory lighting, a glass curtain set midway in a concourse cooled by a water plaza and sheltered by a cantilevered butterfly roof that directs rainflow. I'm hesitant to call all of this a sensitivity to nature. From Lim's own photograph, we can see that the hall sits on flatlands utterly shaped by human activity, defined by shipping, transport, and industry. This vicinity is shaped and reshaped by infrastructure and development that in turn shape the contextual reception of the building. Yet this temporal reshaping is the loss ephemera to the permanence of the model of the building. What the building is open to, if not nature, is the elemental public, the Singapore or the Singaporean to come. The hall's front balcony is broad and generous as an extended hand. Its stairway terraces, both front and rear, offers visitors both promenade and plinth. Lim spoke about his thinking in a 2002 interview. We knew the environment in our country, so we did not have to be overtly self-conscious about it. It was natural, he said, to design the hall as they did. The environment he was speaking of is identitarian, ideological. The natural is the unreactive, porous membrane between design and sociality. Back to the photograph. The rear terrace is the unseen background, made visible at the top of the photographs taken in the same sequence by the press photographer after this one. The rear terrace features in the photographs on nomination day. Ong enters, enters the building under it. He stops frequently before reaching it. The 15-minute walk from his office to the hall now takes him almost 50 minutes. The symbolic possibility of the promenade that the terrace stair could have functioned as, so that people can see, if you stand on it as a person, you can be seen and see. And as a cliff where the people are lifted up, and here, the people stand. These possibilities are untouched. Instead, in most of the photographs of Ong with unaffiliated members of the public, especially those like this, where the response to his personable warmth is recorded, 
In these moments of tactile intimacy, the fence is there. The terrace appears in two photographs where he is most classically presidential, standing with his wife, Ling Siu Mei, above the people, waving and thanking his supporters. Much less affectionate. In all the photographs, the conference hall is where the bureaucrats confer, not where the people assemble. That will be outside, in the immediate vicinity between the ramp and the gate, and beyond. In the spatial design of our electoral politics, this, the fence signals the event of nomination and election is real. That is, not merely discussed, reported or performed, but ready to be addressed by real bodies showing up and moving against and along and with the fence. Voices speaking in person to the ones to the left, to the right, to the crowd, to the politicians, to the power. These make the event public. The earliest instantiation of people's precedent in the photographic record makes it clear that the fence is no accident, not some recurring extra that walked into the democratic mise-en-scene, but the fulcrum on which the design of both people and precedent turns. The fence cups up the space between the gate and the hall proper, and that familiar hierarchy emerges between Singapore politics, the contest for the public by politicians, as defined for citizens by state actors, and the Singapore people. The conference hall's porosity to a tropical democratic socialist modernity is partitioned and diverted even before one arrives at the hall itself. The fence is an infrastructure that identifies for us more than the individual personalities in the picture that this is really Singapore. Because the people's president doesn't have an apostrophe as much as a line, a barricade, a people slash president. This is an image of the people, the president and the holy fence. And aside, the covering date for a whole bunch of these photographs that names Ong as the president-elect is 28th August, 1993. But from everything I can find from the records, the election results were only known in the early mornings of the 29th of August, 1993. Did the National Archivist and photographer then know now something we don't? This particular version of the fence with the chessboard grid and the triangular bars is no longer in use, but its upgrades do as you can see in the offerings by one of Singapore's most prominent contractors. The conference hall and trade union house itself has changed. It has lost all its socialist inclination and the name connections to the union. Even conservationists and NGS calls it the conference house. The sun control grill still exists. The concrete screen on the east side of the grill does not. Neither does the open balcony. But the fence is still with us. This is a method of drawing adjacent a photo history in our archives with queer history, to read one in the guise of the other. This is also a proposition, that a fence is an indexical infrastructure for belonging. The fence extends itself, generates a mature morphology. It grows up here. Those who don't belong can leave. This too is a proposition. The biography of the fence is also that of the citizen, the worker, the queer. To ask this as a question, if like an earworm, the fence repeats its bars and we listen, who listens when the queers repeats themselves? This is a prologue. Photograph two, caption reads, confrontation, no major damage caused when a 25 pound bomb exploded at this junction of Fort Road and Mayer Road in Singapore. 15 April, 1965.
The Bomb, Part 2. On the 15th of April, 1965, a 25-pound bomb exploded on Fort Road, right where it meets Mayer Road, steps away from Katong Park. The bomb shattered windows in the buildings that faced that corner and stripped the leaves off the surrounding trees. A caretaker's home was blown out. Four men were hurt by shrapnel, two bomb disposal experts and two police officers. They, together with four other officers, located the bombs after two Indonesians were arrested by constables on waterfront patrol at Tanjong Ru Beach. The two men had travelled by motorised sampan with a third and landed on the beach an hour earlier. The third man ran and waited near the Singapore Swimming Club before fleeing by their boat. The smaller bomb was still 18 pounds. The bomber placed it at the same Fort Road junction. Major Baker of the bomb disposal team had just tried defusing the 18-pounder when he heard a faint click in the larger one. He yelled. Everyone turned and sprinted, but all eight men were thrown to the ground. Major W.H. Barker, Sergeant Cliston, and Inspector H.L. Miranda were hurt. The fourth was unnamed. Katong Park has been the site of other explosions. On 7th of October 1963, a bomber fused a car bomb of min a couple of minutes after two detectives assigned to catch him had passed that scene um, of the ex eventual explosion. This person had eluded detection twice before. The police noted that each one that he set off improved on the one before. The third one, weighing about four pounds, totaled a car belonging to a Mr. Lo Po Lin, who was mystified by the bomber's choice of his car. Police couldn't determine a the motive. They called him the, bad, the Mad Bomber. I couldn't find a report of the Mad Bomber's arrest. That April was explosive. That first week, a bomb went off in Audience Cinema on North Bridge Road. The second week, a bomb scare frightened off the shoppers and staff in Robinson's on Orchard Road. Exactly a week after the Katong Park bombing, a Gurkha sentry discovered a wire-bound wooden box on the southern tip of Sentosa that turned out to contain 25 pounds of explosives. A call cleared the offices of the Far East Acetylene Company in Pasir Panjang, but that turned out to be also a hoax. Bomb hoaxes got to a point that by the end of the month, the police arrested an 11-year-old boy who made a hoax to, about his primary school. The 1865 bombing damaged mostly the fence that kept a single-story house from the view of anyone walking or driving past. Now, the private spills into the open. We notice the swing, the square windows in the sheltered driveway. A woman in a white shirt, shoulder-length hair, dark glasses, looks out at us, her arms crossed over herself. With her literal defences down, she watches and stands where a void might, and seemingly rubbing her ear, patting her own cheek with the back of her hand. Who is looking in, and who wants to? She could be asking as she soothes herself. The curb is destroyed, and the road is near level with the grass, enough for a path for a bike to come through. The why is clear. We are curious creatures. We are drawn to something that was hidden, now revealed. And because we are self-involved, we think that the house is revealed to us. What the photograph refuses is her identity. We know her home is exposed, but we don't know who she is. We see the woman, but she remains silent. Neither the photographer nor the archivist noted her name. There exists a photograph of the caretaker and his family whose home is blown out, but he is identified only by occupation. 
In the political crisis of confrontasi, the emergent Singaporean-to-be, who are the women and the caretaker, remains unnamed. Only the police earlier were named. In the year of our independence, the caretaker and his family exist for us not as individuals or citizen voters, but as worker. If he didn't take care, he may not exist at all. We see the faces, but the photographs of April 1965 makes it clear that the fence is the protagonist. It is the fence we should be concerned about, the photographs tell us. They stand with the 1963 Katong Park bombing photographs as a lineup of evidence, the frontal view, as though the fence is sitting for a portrait and we are to assess the cracks on its face, admitting its resilience in the face of violence. The time lapse in much of the photographs of war and other violence is that we do not see the mechanism or the moment of violence, but its aftermath. When the smoke clears, we are offered its profile. And from the side, the fence acquires solidity. It is not only unbroken, but virtually near solid. As though the violence and the camera had precipitated a discovery, the fence is no longer a fence, but a wall. Back to the photograph. The fence is the fixture, the focal point. It is the woman who is the accident in the photograph. It is unlikely that she posed for the camera. Her body is balanced as though she's about to take another step. She's not watching out for others at all. She's conveying again her losses, except that her grief, chanced upon by the camera, is no longer her own. If the fence is protagonist, the woman is conscience, its inner tongues. The curb is destroyed and our desire spills in. The reporters of the bombing noted that the Katong Park just across the street was a lover's haunt. Did the bombers knew that they were targeting lovers? They wouldn't be the last. In 1988, Shingmin Daily News reported that some men have been indulging in intimate behaviour at Tanjong Ru. Within a week, two men were arrested close to Fort Road for in committing indecent acts. Next to the article, Residents named the emerging typology of municipal fences as eyesores. Municipal or estate fences developed from rope tied across vertical posts to wooden fences to, steep, uh, to steel prefabricated frames. One of the residents who called the plank in our eyes was a Christina Sergeant Tand. She's the first from the arts that I could find to entangle with the fence. She's my OG but she will not be the last. An artist, Tanjong Ru, and homosex on the same news page. Sounds like 1994. Five years after the 1988 arrest, 12 men were arrested and charged in an anti-gay sting operation. Six pleaded guilty. All were ordered three strokes of the cane each. At the end of that year, a protest performance at the Fifth Passage space further along East Coast led to tabloid sensationalism and a de facto ban on performance art in Singapore for the next decade. Sounds like 2012. Lu Zihan's interrogative re-performance of the 1993 episode brought Tanjong Ru and the regulation of policing of sex back onto the same page. Adeline Chia at the Straits Times wrote that Zihan's cane reenactment essentially asked how much things have changed since 1993. But she called the evening repetitive, annoying, exasperatingly pointless. Things have changed, she wrote. I always appreciate a straight person telling me that. It's a useful reminder for me to be grateful that we are, in her quotation marks, 
allowed to do things in, as she wrote, a freer age. An artist, Tanjong Ru, and homosex. I'm cruising. The streetlights bounce off every incoming car and bicycle like a signal. I'm cruised. We head into darkness, or what seems like darkness. Under the visible moon, I can see the lights at South Beach and every man who is standing around. A man backs up against the steel, lifting his shirt so the green emulsion paint touches his skin. Another man faces it, grabs the thick horizontal bars with both his hands. What happens happens at the fence. In Singapore, the fence romances the queer. The fence says, hold on to me and I'll hold on to you. I'll follow you anywhere. I'll come to Hongling Park with you. I'll stay there as long as you're there. When did Tanjong Ru acquire a name for secretive sexual activity? In 1925, an editorial in the Malayan Tribune pushed to expand sex education as a means for combating sexually transmitted disease. Its language stands on the side of empire for wanting a healthy colony, but it also spoke against the mystification and secrecy around sex, especially by the churches, and they offer an image of widespread sexual culture in Singapore, if only an open secret. In the editorial, Singapore, we repeat, is riddled through and through with venereal disease, thanks to local leaders who wouldn't listen to the good editors, who these local leaders are able to see no further than Tanjong Paga in the west and Tanjong Ru in the east. How long have they known that Tanjong Paga and Tanjong Ru are the limits of decency, that they are illicit places, sexual sites? For hundreds of years, to fence in the language of British criminal law is to knowingly smuggle goods across the bounds of legal and illegal trade. My name is Tanjong Ru. How long can Tanjong Ru fence other bounds of legal and illegal activity? This is a method of drawing adjacent a photo history with a migration history. To read one in the guise of another, this is also a proposition. Those who don't belong don't arrive at all. This too is a proposition. The biography of the fence is that of the citizen. To ask this as a question, if the fence is a wave, to whom is the sea? This is a short prologue to something much, much longer. Photograph three. Caption reads, six kayakers on a guided tour ended up in the sea after their kayaks capsized near the floating sea barriers of off Sentosa Cove. May 31, 31st, 2021. Part three. The marine fence. Four double kayaks set off for the southern islands on a bright, clear morning. Just past 8 a.m., one of the inflatable kayaks moved too close to a floating sea barrier and capsized. The barnacles on the barrier further slashed the couple and the kayak, and when a second kayak came to help, that too capsized. They were rescued within a half hour. In 2014, Cabinet announced that 80 kilometers of maritime barriers will be added to existing maritime fencing. These barriers include shoreline fencing, bollards, and the floating sea barriers that were a hazard to the kayaks. While we were drawn to its essentially high-visibility blue color, the sea barriers are a stainless steel chain fence kept in place by marker boys with sinkers and kept afloat by these HDPE drums. By 2014, we installed 63 kilometers of these fences. With 63 kilometers of new fencing, 
you could ring fence the entire you could ring fence the entire East Coast twice around and still have fence. You could fence the entire length of the PIE and the runway and still have fence. Just before the pandemic, pandemic um, maritime barricades lined half of Singapore Island's 197 kilometer coastline. The plan is to reach 70% of the main island's coastline in the next few years. The projected maritime fencing doesn't count the fencing already constructed around the smaller islands. These, the Deputy Prime Minister has said, will cover 143 kilometers of our 197 kilometer coastline, deterring and preventing illegal entry and channeling vessels. Channeling vessels. Channeling makes me think of mediums, magic, and the wheel of time but it describes maritime vessels, usually small motorized boats that rapidly traverse maritime boundaries in order to drop and receive goods and people. This is fencing on water. On the 25th of March, 2019, just after sundown, a man from Bangladesh and his Malaysian boatman entered Singapore waters with a heading for Pongo Borat. It swerved close to shore, the man leapt into the water and the boatman span, spun back to home waters. The Coast Guard capsized the boat before it reached Malaysia, and the man never made it to the shore. The man never made it past the shoreline. Barbed wire fence held him to the water's edge where the police found him. These fences are not boundary markers separating country from country. They're not deterrents, they are deceleration devices. Back to the photograph. In the far distance, a tanker. Singapore exists as logistical space, a point of network density within multiple supply chains. Closer, a residential enclave. Singapore exists as luxury, as privileged property. Closer still, leisure craft. Singapore as playground, as sports center. Any Singaporean sailor can traverse these Singapores, make romance of the slightest danger, of the elements, of the water, of how water changes. I think of my father, who came to Singapore from the Riau Islands, where he was born as a young boy on a small boat. With the maritime fences, this journey is now near impossible. I look back to the earliest photo in the archive from 1941 of a barbed wire shoreline fence. The photograph tricks me with an illusory palimpsest of wires and fences. When I first saw it, I thought laundry was left to dry on barbed wire, as though it was domesticating it, pacifying its points. When I first saw it, I thought about how we can defense our defenses. But for that, we are out of time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Parang Sessions. This talk was part of October Gathering, a meeting of artists, cultural workers, and art enthusiasts that occurred in October 2022 at the gallery. Follow us for updates and new episodes. To learn more about our programs at the gallery, visit nationalgallery.sg. By bringing this podcast to you, National Gallery Singapore aims to enrich people's lives through art and culture. If our mission resonates with you, please consider supporting by donating through donate.nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Jolene Lowe, Kalisha Chia Kasim, and Michelle Lee. The music is by Javon Chandra. I am Arabelle Chuang. Thanks for listening. <laughs>